Today I welcome Michael Windsor, Headmaster Abingdon School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss the effects of modern masculinity, harnessing creativity, the importance of languages and local partnerships. On this podcast, and we've seen in the headlines that girls' schools and obviously all the Me Too and everything to do with girls' education is always at the forefront. And I feel that sometimes that boys' educational boys don't necessarily have a spotlight and they go through an enormous amount of challenges in this digital world. And it's not just, you know, there are some esteem issues and other things. And I want to talk about this modern world and how it's redefining masculinity. What kind of behaviours do you consider to be a result of toxic masculinity? This notion of, of toxic masculinity is one I completely understand where, where it's come from. It's one that I kind of want to challenge as well, because I think it can be... Because now when you say the word masculinity, the adjective which is automatically placed in front of it is toxic. And ultimately, you know, we're dealing with kind of, well, 50% or so of the population. I think we, rather than kind of grouping them together in this notion of kind of toxic behaviours, We've got to open them up to positive visions of masculinity, make sure they can see that. I mean, I think the kinds of behaviours you see, I mean, I think one of the problems is that there has been an inability to listen. We're all familiar with the notion of mansplaining. And uh, I think it's really important that actually we now listen to other perspectives, particularly female perspectives, which probably we've just spent too much time kind of ignoring or talking over or feeling we knew better. So showing a bit of humility and listening to other perspectives is really important. I see toxic masculinity as when, you know, it tends to be when large groups of men all come together, often fueled by alcohol can often play a role, then, you know, that collectively, they can become very intimidating and very challenging for women. Clearly, the Everyone's Invited website, which you mentioned earlier, was a real wake-up call as well. I think we all knew these things were going on, but not at the scale, perhaps, that we recognise after seeing that website. And that was a real shock. I found it really, really difficult reading that for the first time. And I kind of think rightly so, because it was, it was really kind of challenging, perhaps, a view of the students I had in the school, which is generally really, really positive, because, Phil, you know, you see the best of them in the school. But clearly what was happening is that they were, you know, after school and out of that context that students from schools like Abingdon and and lots, and clearly there were co-ed schools as well as boys' schools involved in this, but male students kind of indulging in behaviours which were really problematic and really difficult that we've we've got to confront. So I think it was a really valuable wake-up call, and I hope we are managing to address that at Abingdon now. Yeah, and it's part of an ongoing piece of change anyway. It's not something that that you can have a meeting and just... Do you know what? Okay, I recognise that we fixed it. It's ongoing education. It's like unconscious bias and and everything else. We're we're reframing so much that, you know, when you and I were going through school and going through early adulthood, it wasn't really considered. Do you think that the role of social media has just amplified something that was already there in the past? Or do you think that this is a, a new phenomenon, the way that the kids are kind of talking and behaving? I don't think this is anything new. I think social media is difficult because it does amplify it. And I think clearly there are challenges with social media because you can never turn it off. We can during the school day. And clearly, you know, we don't let students use their phones during the the school day until the the sixth form when they have a bit more 
control over how they use their devices. But the challenges out of school, clearly, they are operating in an online world that we cannot control. So I absolutely agree with you when you say this is a kind of systemic change that is not going to be solved by a meeting here or there or an assembly or a blog post. It's something we've got to take on kind of long term. We've all got to kind of look at our attitudes. You you mentioned kind of role models earlier. I think that's really, really valuable. It's kind of what older men in particular are modeling to students and young men. We've got to address it as a long-term problem. It's not just going to go away. Clearly, you know, society has changed significantly. It's changed massively since when I was at school. It will continue to do so. And I think we've just got to make sure that we do what we can to ensure it goes in the right direction and that young men can play a positive part in that change as well. As a leader of a boys' school, how are you reframing masculinity for boys at Abingdon? By trying to kind of... First of all, really capture this sense of humility and the need to listen, the need to acknowledge and really absorb some of the lessons that have come out of Everyone's Invited and the Me Too movement. It's very easy to take over a kind of defensive position and say, I don't recognise that, that's not me, I've never seen that. You know, Actually, what we're trying to say is, no, these things are happening, we've got to acknowledge they are. And even if you may not be directly responsible, what part can you play in being part of the change? And that's a message, I suppose, we're trying to get part of the culture of the school. So it's happening through through assemblies, through PSHCE, lessons through lectures and discussions. But also we want it to be part of the day-to-day culture of the school. So in whether it's a games lesson or an academic subject, just really kind of acknowledging that there is an issue and that men have got to play a part in changing it. Yeah, and there's so many nuances, you know, that the whole phrase like just man up, you know, we kind of just grew up with it and it, it just became something you would just say. But now, you know, I'm almost mindful of quite a lot of things that I may say. Do you ever get worried about almost us overthinking, trying to be politically correct on so many different levels that actually we, we lose the sense of being authentic and actually people get themselves into more problems, and particularly these young men and women, because we're overthinking the trouble they could get into. I think there is a problem. And I think we're all struggling, aren't we, to navigate our way through it. I think the word authenticity that you use is really important, actually. I suppose kind of going back to really kind of fundamental values. And ultimately, those values are about being kind to other people and about respecting other people. I think when you're kind of navigating some of the complexities of these things, I think if you can kind of stick to those fairly basic values, generally you're going to get it right. And that's, I suppose, a lesson we're trying to get across the students as well. I think there was a problem with this whole notion of kind of man up and and men just feeling that they could not share problems and so on. And I think it's right that that's really being challenged now and, and that the message is, look, if you have concerns and also saying, if you feel a friend of yours might have a problem, don't be afraid to kind of encourage them to share or I mean certainly you know as I said I was meeting up with some old school friends on Saturday and I think we're still quite reticent to we don't just sit there and share our problems straight away but actually company you know a distraction doing something different can be really positive for changing the the mind music if you like for someone who is struggling with issues but There is a balance to be struck, isn't there? Because we also need to develop in our young people a sense of grit and and determination and that sometimes things are going to be really, really tough. 
and you've got to equip yourself to deal with that. You know, it's interesting how the debate has moved. You know, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about happiness a lot. And I think it kind of making out that you can always be happy and that life's always going to be kind of wonderful, that is inauthentic. It's not going to work that way. But what you can do is, is equip people to appreciate a fulfilled life, you know. And, and actually, I think if you're going to do that, you have to deal with some of the challenge as well. Kids need to learn how to fail. It's not everyone's going to be a winner, which we seem to get the wokeness. You know, I think about 10 years ago, you know, it sensed that no one could win. It was, I remember sports day, you know, everyone got a medal, medal for just turning up. And for me, I think it went too far, you know, because you will fail in life. It's about understanding why you fail. And is it a failure just because you didn't put enough effort in? Or did you fail because, you know, someone was better than you? Or why did you fail? But what kind of impact does that really have on? the future of your life and is having a good network and schools are very good at this to be able to pick them up but also obviously parents to be able to pick the kids up pick the boys up and go you know what you can do this you know this is it's just a minor blip and you'll, you'll become a better person because of it it's interesting because I've got two boys and two girls so again trying to parent them all equally with the same advice is, is, is often tricky just because biologically they're very different but with my boys particularly, it is about being an upstander. And I had this on one of my podcasts, one of my guests, and the Americans are big at this. And they talk about service a lot, which I think we need to do more of. And it's decided being an upstander. And it, and it really resonated because it's the one thing I'm just trying to say to my boys, particularly, and also my girls, but really boys, is stand up. Don't be the one just, you know, you're going to be called names because you've called someone out. How much do we need to do in schools to make boys and girls feel comfortable for sticking their neck out and pointing out bad behaviour or inappropriate behaviour to their peers? I think it's vital. I think it's a real challenge. But I think actually the notions you're describing, first of all, of service, that's very much kind of part of our ethos as a message we kind of drive home to the students. But I, I think this notion of, you know, be an upstander, not a bystander, which is a phrase which I think kind of all the students now recognise. But it takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? It takes a lot of courage to stand up to your peer group, to be the one who says, you know what, this is not right. You know, I just don't like this. This does not fit. It's uncomfortable. We've all had difficult conversations. You don't want to have it because it's, it's a human thing you don't want to because it feels this isn't going to go well, right? I, I know I'm going to do something that's going to annoy someone, upset someone. It's, I'm going to get an adverse reaction. But sometimes you could be pleasantly surprised when they go, I'm really sorry. I didn't, I didn't realise I'd spoken that way or said this. or I didn't know. You build up that resilience by doing it, going, okay, I'll do it again. And we need more people to try. Absolutely. And, and I think it's trying to give them the kind of context, the kind of language that you can perhaps use when you're in a situation that you're not very comfortable with. Walking your way through what the scenario might be, you know, whether you're with a group of friends who, who start to behave in a way you don't like and the kind of distraction. Why don't we do this instead? You know, why, thinking about different ways, just as we all do in our professional lives all the time, we're kind of perhaps thinking about how we manage kind of difficult conversations and that there are different ways through that. So I think by kind of wargaming some of these scenarios, you hope that then young people are better equipped when they come to the real thing. I want to ask you about all boys education, because we've seen some quite high profile all boys school committing to co-ed. Is there a long term future for all boys schools or is it going to be girls and co-ed? 
it's really interesting. I mean, clearly, uh, I think if you were setting up a school today, would you want it to be a single-sex school or co-ed? I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think single-sex schools can still really thrive in society today. I think it's perhaps more important than ever that boys' schools and girls' schools work together. And we're very fortunate having a girls' school very close to us just down the road in Abingdon, having connections with girls' schools in Oxford as well, that we're able to provide really meaningful opportunities for boys and girls to work together, not just enjoy one another's company, but actually kind of learn from one another. And at the same time, providing a context for boys in this school to make the most of all the opportunities that are available to them. I suppose it allows us to concentrate our resources on providing opportunities that the boys might particularly enjoy in terms of sport and so on. And I think sometimes, you know, it can be a relief to kind of grow up away from some of the pressures that can come from having boys and girls mixed together in a school. So I think it's really important that particularly leaders of boys' schools think these questions in the light of what's happened. But I think there are ways to manage it and to get through it. I want to talk about creativity in young people. You're obviously a musician, you're big into the arts. Does an independent education offer more opportunities for fostering creativity than state sector? I think we are fortunate. I mean, there, there's a resources angle, clearly, that can make a difference. And it's also that there are some freedoms in terms of the way we shape our timetables and the way we run our schools. I mean, Abilene is a day and boarding school. We have kind of an extended day till 5.20 and all the pupils are part of and part. Of the reason for that is because we want to make sure there are really good opportunities for involvement in music, in drama, and art, in journalism, in publishing, creative writing, and so on. So all sorts of outlets for creativity. And I think those opportunities for involvement in the arts are really crucial. And we might talk about partnership later and how independent schools can work together with non-independent schools, I think, in a really, really positive way. But I, I also think creativity is something that has to be developed and fostered through the curriculum as well. It's actually what's going on in the classroom in every subject and how teachers are open to developing creativity that can be really, really, really effective. I think maintained schools often there is perhaps more pressure on them to deliver in terms of accountability measures related to public exams. Now, clearly those are important in independent schools too, but people generally looking at independent schools will look at the bigger picture in a way that those accountability measures that non-independent schools are working to don't always allow. In your opinion, what is the best way to harness creativity in young people? We've obviously seen Sir Ken Robinson talk heavily about the importance of creativity and how it's taught out of our young kids when you know they're in primary school before they join schools like yours how do we go about harnessing creativity in young people really interesting question and I think it is really important that we start young and actually when you look at what's going on in primary schools often you know you're staggered by the kind of creativity that young people kind of show almost innately I do feel, though, if you're going to develop your creativity, you need some tools to do that. And I might, you know, bang on about music again. You know, if you just show someone a, a piano or something and say, off you go, be creative, they're just going to bang on the piano and make a pretty terrible racket with it. They probably need some structure to work with. And, and that is very much, I suppose, the nature of jazz, really, is that you work off a structure 
but you then learn from that structure and you're allowed to kind of escape from that as you develop as a musician and you can then kind of improvise your own ideas and so on and, and I think there's a really strong model for developing creativity I do think that young people need kind of building blocks as well and I think there's no shame in learning from great people who've come before you whether that's great artists and their techniques or great writers and so on and I think you need to absorb some of those lessons before you be creative yourself I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I don't want um, a conversation always to be around gender splits, but do you feel, and again, what's your experience at Abingdon School with the amount of creative subjects that the boys are taking? And is, is that in line with the rest of the country? We're really fortunate, Abingdon, actually, that there's really healthy take-up of art, drama, of music and so on. Drama, interesting, is a subject we co-teach with the girls' school. So we, we have boys and girls coming together in those lessons. We do see a real kind of sense of interest in those creative subjects. If there are, again, it's probably about, you know, you want inspirational teachers. So it's about role models, again, and people really kind of inspiring them in these areas. With the time and then resources available, I think absolutely you can get boys involved in those subjects and really enjoying them as well. My eldest son is all arts and he's studying drama A-level. But yeah, and it's just choice, you know, they've got to go down the route. And he's just always been fascinated. I think it's the online, the streaming culture. They have access to so much art. Do you think that the average adult spends probably 25 hours per week watching stuff, you know, on TV or streaming? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's no wonder we should be making sure that there is much more interest at school because the rest of the world, when you go out there becoming an adult, you spend all your time consuming it. So there are jobs and roles and, and things that we can, we can certainly be doing. You were a language teacher. I know you studied French and German at Durham University and you learned Italian whilst living in Italy. Do you think the UK education system has always struggled with teaching languages and keeping kids interested in wanting to carry on learning languages? And how do we fix that? Big question. I think there are particular challenges in getting young people in this country interested in languages when English has become such a global language. You know, we're really fortunate in this country that if you have English, you're able to engage with generally with people from all around the world without necessarily having to learn their language. And the fact is, you know, that we have very limited kind of access to films in other languages and so on. I think more so now, which is really interesting. You know, we talked about the kind of Scandi noir obsession in this country. It's really interesting that people are perhaps more prepared to watch subtitled programmes than they used to be in the past where people would just switch over as soon as they saw a, a subtitle. But ultimately, you know, there's a lot of content coming to us, clearly from the States as well, in English. So kind of opening people's eyes up to the value of learning languages and the kind of adventures you can have in other languages is comparatively more difficult you know if you're Dutch say and Dutch is your first language and you know you need to if you want to engage with the wider world you're going to need another language and English is likely to be that choice then there's much more of an imperative for learning that language so I think I think there is a challenge there 
And I think also we've tended to glory as a nation in our kind of exceptionalism and make out that English is more important than other languages because it is so widely spoken. And sometimes it's a weird kind of badge of honour that, oh, I was terrible at languages at school. I never bothered, you know, and uh, that message can easily get out to young people that they don't really matter. So, yeah, there's definitely work to be done. And I get by with just a few kind of words of French. I'm always embarrassed when I do go abroad because I do want to learn some words. And my, and my kids are embarrassed, right? They're really embarrassed when I, I kind of want to learn some basics. I, I want to be able to communicate the bare minimum that shows that I've tried. But kids nowadays, they're using technology. And this, this is where we see the proliferation of technology and automation and AI. I can hold my phone up to the waiter. He can speak to me in Spanish and it talks to me and tells me what you're saying. I can speak to him back in English and it can talk to him. Technology is great, but that's probably killing the kind of the wish or the want to go out there and give languages a go. I think technology has got a really positive and beneficial role to play actually in learning languages. I find astonishing actually with, with technology is just the kind of the resources that are now available to you kind of instantly are just amazing, really. Can be, when I think about when I was teaching languages, I started teaching in the 90s, you know, it was, it was really hard to get kind of authentic materials and certainly then to get them in a format that you could manage and use in a positive way with a class. So you felt a bit of a, a sense of disconnection between what you're doing in the classroom and the country. Whereas now, you know, the availability of streaming, YouTube, etc., is really exciting, actually, in what you can show in the classroom. And also some of the kind of platforms that there are now for learning languages are really great for kind of reinforcing some of the work that's going on in class, be it Geolingo or other kind of quizzing platforms and so on, which take away some of the chore of trying to learn vocabulary and so on. And I think we have to recognise that, you know, the technology is, I mean, it is amazing, you know, that what you just described is phenomenal, really. But actually, that gives you a bit of an opportunity to incorporate what you're picking up from your technology and build on it and grow that more. And I hope we can, that's what I want to do with our young people, is really say, yeah, fine, you can do that. But why not take it to the next stage and kind of, it's one thing, you know, ordering in a restaurant, but can you turn that into a conversation? You know, what's it like kind of finding out about someone from a different country, kind of really engaging them in their own language when you know, they're, they're going to kind of, you'll find out more about them, they'll open up more when you're engaging in their mother tongue, rather than just assuming that English is the only mode of communication. That sounds like a great approach. I look back and my father always said, you know, you'll probably regret some of your choices as, you know, that you did at school and, and you wish you'd learn more. And he's absolutely right. And I say that to my children, I'm pretty sure when they get to my age, they'll be saying, Dad, you know, you said that, I wish I'd done more. But I just feel like that that is just, the generations, and we, we're constantly trying to repeat lessons of wisdom back to the kids who are at a point in their lives where nothing we say is of use or of interest. It just feels like it's a chore. It is too true. I mean, which of us listens to our parents, you know, and, and then you become one. And you, as you say, you know, I find myself repeating the mantras that my parents used to say about, I don't know, musical instruments or, you know, getting more exercise, you know, all these things that they used to say to me. I'm now saying the same things to my own children. So, uh, yeah, we go round and round. I want to wrap up by talking about partnerships because the I know a lot of independent schools focus a lot on partnerships. I'm always challenging to see whether or not this is just corporate 
kind of governance that you just want to put out there because it, it sounds good it's good PR but I know that yours go a lot deeper than that and I want you to tell us a little bit about your partnership program. Sure yeah so I mean I, I hope that we go a long way beyond what you're describing. We've made a very definite move I would say about five six years ago very much to move away from this notion of outreach where there was a kind of, it was a slightly kind of patronizing view of you know, what could independent schools offer to maintain schools, to genuine partnerships, to recognising what we as teachers and students in independent schools can also learn and gain from our partners in maintained schools. So there's a really rich programme at uh, Abingdon, and we're part of a group of six schools called the OX14 Learning Partnerships. It was established in October uh, last year, And that includes three secondary maintained schools in Abingdon and three independent schools kind of working together. And we're always looking at putting together a programme where students from all our schools can benefit. Things like, you know, we've got a very successful peer mentoring scheme. That's sixth formers who come together from the six schools. They train up together and they're learning about how they can go back into their own environments and support younger pupils, especially younger students who may be having uh, some problems with their their mental health or their approach to their learning. And that's really meaningful because they're learning from one another. They can share their experiences, their expertise, and things that they gain from their own schools. And they're very much on a kind of level playing field. So everybody is benefiting. You know, equally, we do a lot in science. We've got a very active science partnerships programme. We collaborate a lot with local primary schools in this scheme. And that's really beneficial for our students because they're going into these primary schools and maybe leading workshops or they might be hosting visitors from, from the primary sector as well here on site. And that's a really good leadership opportunity for our students because they're having to deliver content to these younger people. They have to think about how they present it, how they structure their presentations and so on. They're really, really valuable skills. So I, I think the key really to successful partnership is the sense that everybody needs to benefit from it it's not a kind of a giving away of various things that an independent school may have it's very much a collaborative partnership a collaborative approach that benefits everybody involved yeah because I spoke to Julie Robinson last year around what the ISC were doing so obviously to support all independent schools and getting away from the outreach piece because it, it was very kind of it's the rich giving to the poor as opposed to it being a genuine partnership, because what the state school can do, even resource-wise, and some of their, their, their knowledge, and even just their own people inside the school, the students and the teachers can offer a huge amount. I was just wondering what other school leaders can learn from this, and is this something that all schools should be taking part in? I think everybody should take part in it, because I think it, it is a genuine benefit, and ultimately it will benefit all the young people in this country and also break down you know some of these class divides which i don't think anybody wants to see those sustained i think everybody would benefit from it and i think it's kind of identifying partner schools and i think also just finding the kind of champions in the staff people who will take this on be that in the maintained school or the independent school you need the kind of right personalities people who are interested in collaboration who don't just see problems and say well it's all too difficult it's inconvenient you know it's actually recognizing what can be gained from this sort of partnership and then putting the structures in place that allow that to happen 
And what about measurement? Are these things you set out at the beginning to kind of look at goals and go, okay, well, you know, is it lives impacted? Is it how many, you know, teacher hours put in? You know, how do you go about measuring the success of, I say, a partnership program? It's it's a really key issue because there's all sorts of things that we think are probably great kind of instinctively, but we don't really know. And it's a question I've challenged a lot with by governors. We have worked quite a lot with a group called Impact Ed to try and look into this area and think about how we can measure impact most effectively. We do have a number of key performance indicators which relate to the kind of the number of experiences that we're offering, the number of hours that young people are spending involved in the activities, and also about the number of hours that teachers from our different schools are spending being involved with them. We're trying to take that further to really look at impact on the young people who take part in a scheme. Now, quite a lot of that is qualitative because you're kind of trying to gauge kind of perhaps confidence or ability at the start of an activity. And then, you know, we'll do questionnaires and so on to see how they are finding the activities as they go through them. And then perhaps see where they've got to at the end of the year. And that will then does give us some data. We've done this. This is our third year of kind of working in this way. I think we're kind of beginning to get there and see some more meaningful data. But I think it is an area that we need to continue to focus on and develop. It's easy to see the benefit of these things when you're part, you're in the room and you're seeing these young people working together. But in terms of a kind of a lasting effect, that's much harder to measure. But I think we've got to do it because clearly we need to justify how people are spending their time and making sure they're putting their, you know, making the best possible use of their time. Exactly. And, and you, you mentioned the data. It's, it's just being able to kind of track it and, and continue tracking it to see that impact. And, you know, was this a major contributing, you know, part of why they made the decisions they did further down the line and who they became? Those are the bits that you can put back into education to make sure it's fit purpose for the next generation. Because also they will be the advocates that come back and, and start to be your mentors and go, do you know what, it worked for me. So I wish you all the best with that because data is always hard to, to gather on these, these things. But I know how hugely important it is to the future decision making. Michael, thanks ever so much for your time. It's been really fantastic. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.